Yeah, that back there, that is, uh, that is uh, Sam Sheepdog and Ralph Wolf, who is the, uh, now Ralph apparently is the cousin to Wiley Coyote. That's, that's my guess. Every morning, Sam and Ralph would report to work and meet at the time clock, which is mounted on that tree. And as they clocked in, they would greet each other with a, with a courteous and respectful, good morning, Sam, and good morning, Ralph. And then they would go to their separate departments to begin their, their work day. Sam, the sheepdog, went to his post on the cliff. And took his position as as head of the sheep protection department. Ralph, true to his nature as a wolf, would slink away into the forest to plan his strategy as head of the sheep acquisition and consumption department. (laughs) I don't make this up. This is what it was. Absolutely. As the day wore on, Sam sat patiently at his post with a protective eye looking over the flock as Ralph tried one scheme after another in hopes of making his quota of sheep for the day. However, no matter how hard he tried, it seemed that poor Ralph's plan was always prevented by Sam at the very last moment. Inevitably, as the the day drew to a close, just before the whistle blew, Ralph would pull out all the stops and slip into his sheep costume and meander amongst the flock with the hope of finally catching one of his prey. Only to realize that the prey he had caught was in fact none other than Ralph, who himself was in a sheep costume. In anticipation of Ralph's schemes. Poor, poor, poor Ralph never seemed to catch a break. Ralph's sheep costume illustrates a tactic that is used by our enemy, the devil. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus warns us that in a similar fashion, Satan will send wolves into the flock. The church, dressed in sheep's clothing, seeking to devour those who are not careful and cautious about their false teaching. This was a significant problem in the early church. So much so that Peter devoted more than a full chapter to this very problem. As he wanted believers to understand who these false teachers were and how they operated. Last week we finished 
the first chapter of 2 Peter, where Peter laid the foundation for our faith. That being the Word of God in which Jesus Christ is the key central figure throughout. Peter knows it's just a matter of time before he is put to death. So he wanted his readers to stand firmly on the truth of God's word after he was gone. Peter explained that God's word is a reliable and trustworthy guide for God's people. However, he was also aware that false teachers... We're out there as well. And they were a threat. So in contrast to the godly prophets and the apostles who spoke for God as they were being moved by the Holy Spirit, Peter begins chapter 2 by contrasting them with the false teachers who have plagued God's people with their deceptive lives and quite frankly will continue to do so. So, let's pick up where we left off. So turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to begin with the first three verses. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Are you there? But false prophets also arose among the people. Just as there will also be false teachers among you. Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Let's stop there. Peter tells us, almost as a matter of fact, that just as there were false prophets who pretended to speak for God throughout the Old Testament, we can also be assured that there are also false teachers within the Christian faith who will pretend to speak for God and introduce teaching that is contrary to the fundamental doctrines which we hold dear. You know, it's... It's easy to identify false teachers in other religions. It's easy to identify false teachers in in other so-called so-called Christian churches out there. But Peter tells us that these false teachers will actually arise 
from within the community of believers. And Peter isn't the only one who gives us this warning. The Apostle Paul, in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, told the elders at the church in Ephesus, listen to this, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, did you see that? And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Now, I need to clarify what's being said here is I don't want to give the impression that just because we might disagree on a minor doctrinal issue that one of us is a heretic. Okay? As I speak... There are thousands of Christian denominations throughout this world which are largely divided as a result of minor issues over secondary doctrinal matters. I mean, there are denominations divided over their view of the tribulation or of rapture. There are denominations divided over the style of music or which Bible version you read. I mean, it's mind-numbing. And although it's unfortunate because it creates division within the body of Christ, I don't think... Peter is talking about these minor doctrinal secondary matters, okay? I also don't think that Peter is talking about teachers with integrity who make honest mistakes in their interpretation and application of the Bible. We just finished the book of Revelation on Wednesday nights, right? And that book, if you're not careful, will have you all twisted up and confused as to whether is what is accurate and not. You know, for example, my view was you took you take Revelation literal, unless it's obvious, it's symbolic. But maybe I took something literal that should have been symbolic, or vice versa. I can see how someone could get twisted up and confused and say something that isn't entirely accurate. So for clarification, I don't think Peter is talking about teachers who make honest mistakes. Although we want to correct those mistakes, right? Absolutely. The people I think Peter is talking about are those who preach and teach doctrines which are knowingly contrary to the fundamental truths of our Christian faith. 
These truths include the triune nature of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. His virgin birth, His sinless life, His sacrificial payment for our sin on the cross. His bodily resurrection from the grave. His ascension into heaven and His promise to return one day. Any teaching that is contrary to that is false teaching as far as I am concerned. In addition, we cannot waver on the essential truth of the gospel. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And since we were on this topic last week, We cannot and will not question the inspiration, the authority, and the inerrancy of God's Word. So I think Peter is focused on these false teachers who are subtly introducing lies to distort the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. Peter goes on to say that these false teachers work secretly. In other words, no false teacher ever announces himself as a false teacher. Hey, I'm a false teacher, and I'm going to teach you some wrong stuff. They just don't do that. But rather, they are smooth operators, pretending to be followers of Christ who present their ideas alongside the truth. Their their teaching appears to be scriptural. It sounds good. It seems right. But it's not. Peter describes their teaching as destructive heresies. And let me explain what that means. Heresy conveys the idea of making a choice. And that's what the false teachers offer believers who are not careful and cautious. A choice, an alternative to the truth. An alternative that comes alongside the truth so it appears scriptural. Now let's be honest. I will admit that intellectually, And emotionally, there are some truths in the Bible that are hard to understand and maybe even harder to accept. There are some uncomfortable and unpopular truths in the Bible that are difficult to swallow. So these false teachers offer up something that is more appetizing more appealing, an alternative, a more progressive, a more tolerant and popular way of looking at Jesus and his claims and his teaching. Peter says they have denied the master who bought them. Meaning they have rejected Christ and the salvation that he offers. 
These false teachers may know about Jesus. They may know the right facts about Him, but they reject the truth. They deny Christ's claim that He is the way and the truth and the life. And they replace the truth of God with a lie, even suggesting, even suggesting there are other ways to heaven. They are lost. Now, verse 2 is troubling. Not surprising, but troubling. In that Peter tells us many will follow their destructive and shameful ways. And keep in mind that the many who follow are not pagans. These are followers from the church. This reminds us that false preachers and teachers may be very popular. They may have a large following of church folk. But just because something attracts a crowd doesn't mean it's of God. Peter says people will follow their sensuality, which I take to mean these false teachers will cater to the desires of the flesh. They will not call sin a sin. And they do not talk about judgment. And they surely don't mention anything about a real, live, hot hell. They avoid these troubling truths, explaining them away, and instead make excuses for immoral living and sexual freedom. I mean, God is love, right? And many people listen to them because, quite frankly, this is what people want to hear. No one wants to hear, thou shalt not. Instead, we want to hear, do what thou wilt. They would rather hear things that make them feel good and ultimately lets them do what they want to do. Paul talked about this very problem in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, where he said, For a time will come, When they will not tolerate sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they will turn their ears away from the truth. And will turn aside to myths. So according to Paul... The listeners in the last days, and we are in the last days, will have itching ears. And Peter makes it clear that these false teachers are more than happy to scratch their itching ears with their false words. The Greek word for false is plastos. It's where we get our English word for plastic. 
plastic words are words that can be twisted to mean just about anything you want them to mean. The false teachers use our vocabulary. They use the same words we use, but they often don't mean what we mean. And when they do mean what we mean, they are generally taken out of context. So when someone says they believe in Jesus, what does believe mean to them? And in regard to Jesus, is this Jesus the one who is accurately portrayed in the Bible? Or is this their version of Jesus? Peter continues and tells us that their motivation is personal gain. It's greed. Greed is the sin of always wanting more. Whether it be more things, more pleasures, or more money. And it's typically at the expense of others. These false teachers are interested only in using religion for their personal gain. And for them, religion is used as a method of extortion. And with their doctrine, they fleece the sheep. Be very careful and cautious with preachers and teachers who place an overwhelming emphasis on getting your money So you can receive a miracle of health and wealth and well-being. Be very careful. A New York couple received through the mail two tickets to a smash Broadway hit. Oddly, the gift arrived without a note and they wondered who had sent it. But still, they attended the show and enjoyed it immensely. Returning to their apartment, they discovered that their bedroom had been ransacked. Valuable furs and jewels were missing, and on the pillow was a simple note, Now you know. (laughs) Now you know. (laughs) Like that nameless thief, A false teacher knows what people want, and he appeals to their desires. He claims he can enrich their lives, but in the end, those who follow him often learn at a very high cost that they have been deceived. So having described the the tactics of these false teachers, Peter then turns to God's view of their activities. Let's read verses 4 through 10. And let me just tell you, it's a really long sentence. The whole thing. It's one sentence, okay? Verses 4 through 10. Are you there? Okay. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he 
brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if, I need to get a breath, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then... The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially to those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. That's one, that's a, that's one long, long sentence. But let's just stop there, please. In this long passage, which, which reads like an if-then statement. If you do this, then this happens. If-then. Peter gives three examples to prove that God has an established pattern of reserving judgment for the wicked. And therefore, we can be confident that at the right time, In his time, God will judge these wicked, false teachers. Now, there are a couple things I want to point out from this passage. If you noticed, these three examples gradually reduce in scale. From beyond this world, when God judged the angels who were doing what they weren't supposed to be doing, and so he confined them in the pit. Then, to worldwide, when God judged humanity through the flood, drowning the whole world except for eight people. And then locally, when God completely destroyed the cities in the region of Sodom and Gomorrah. Only three people were eventually saved in that region. And if you go to the New Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah is repeatedly held up as an illustration of what happens to people who reject the truth and believe a lie. If God did all this, then why would anyone think that God would not judge these false teachers? No one is exempt from God's judgment. Not even the angels, who in many respects are higher than man. And although not stated here, maybe the false teachers had claimed, among other things, that they were beyond God's judgment. Or maybe they taught there was no judgment. And hell is not really real. I think Peter's point here is that judgment of the wicked, judgment of these false teachers, although delayed at times, is still very real and it's certain to come. And something else I want to point out in this passage. It's possible, I'm speculating here, okay? 
it is possible that these three examples were given to Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because these characteristics of those judged in the past happen to be similar to these characteristics of the false teachers. For example, it was pride that caused the angels to rebel and fall. In Noah's day, the people were corrupt and carnal. And for the men of Sodom, it was their sensuality. Which, when put all together, seemed to be the same characteristics of these false teachers. They will be judged. And although God is loving and gracious and merciful, we must never forget that He is also holy and just. That's a part of God's character that false teachers most likely would soon forget. However, that does not change God's character one bit. God is holy and just, and therefore He must punish sin. Now there's one more thing I want to point out from this passage. Not only are we assured that God will judge sin, as seen in the examples of the judgment against the angels, against the wicked during the flood, and against the sexually immoral in the region of Sodom and Gomorrah, but Peter also tells us that God will rescue his own people. Although God's judgment against sin is a sure thing, by God's grace and mercy, His rescue of the righteous is also a sure thing. In the flood, God protected righteous Noah and those who believed His message. And before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, God rescued righteous Lot and his two disciples. His daughter, excuse me, his two daughters. And let's talk about that for a minute. Because that deserves a little bit of clarification. You remember when I said that some truths in the Bible are hard to understand? This is one of those occasions. Because in our passage, the word righteous was used three times to describe Lot. Did you notice that? This may be surprising. Because if you recall Old Testament history, it was Lot who chose to live in Sodom. And it was Lot who missed out on the Father of the Year award when he was prepared to offer up his two virgin daughters to the homosexual desires of the men of Sodom. So he could save the two angelic uh, guests from homosexual rape. It's kind of a head-scratcher. But apparently... God knew something about Lot's heart not recorded in the Old Testament, which God later revealed to Peter. We're told by Peter that while Lot lived in Sodom, he endured a daily struggle in his heart against the evil that he was witnessing. He was worn down by the filth he saw every day to the point that he was 
tormented by it. The word tormented can also be translated as tortured. Such was the heart of Lot, to the point that he is now being remembered as righteous. If God knew how to save Noah and seven others from the flood, if He knew how to save Lot and his two daughters from wrath, then surely the Lord knows how to save those who belong to Him. God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, and He is able to keep the righteous upright in an unrighteous culture. We have absolutely nothing to fear. God graciously saves those who are His. God loves us and He desires the best for us. Therefore, we should stand firm in following Him. We should be diligent to know His Word. And we should be careful and cautious so that we don't fall for the deceptive and subtle doctrines of the false teachers. For as you may know, big differences often start with small and subtle beginnings. Consider this. If you are going somewhere and you are off, you're off course by just one degree, just one itty bitty degree, after one foot, you'll miss your target by two tenths of an inch. That's trivial, right? Two tenths of an inch. That's nothing. But what about as you get farther out? After 100 yards, you'll be off by 5.2 feet. Not huge, but it's noticeable. After a mile, you'll be off by 92.2 feet. One degree is starting to make a difference. Traveling around the globe, you'll be off by nearly 500 miles. In a rocket going to the moon, you've missed the moon by 4,169 miles. Going to the sun, you'll miss it by over 1.6 million miles. Traveling to the nearest star, you'll be off course by over 441 billion miles. All of this over time from a mere one degree error in It makes a difference in distance, and it also makes a difference in doctrine. A little bit of error can have a big impact. 
So beware of false teachers and be careful and cautious about what you read and what you watch and what you hear. Be careful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together with my brothers and sisters. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you would give us a a zeal and a passion for you and for your word. Father, give us a thirst and a hunger to know your word, to dissect it, to digest it, Father. Father, help us to be alert. Help us be careful and cautious as to what we expose ourselves to. Father, your word is true, and there are false teachers within the Christian community. Father, help us to be, again, alert. And Father, help us to keep our distance. May you be honored and glorified, Father, in in who we are. Help us to live our lives for you. I thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Dave, come on up. You know, this has been a... uh, I'm just thinking about last year and even this year, we've talked a lot about, about fake news and, and, and just false information. And, and uh, I, 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 get this, I get this email from this former, former chaplain, um, and, and she'll send me stuff all the time, and I have to scratch my head. It's as if she doesn't... And she sends it out almost worldwide, it seems like. But it's as if she doesn't actually read what she sends out. Because if she would, she would realize within just five minutes, the information is totally a hoax. Or it was something that happened ten years ago that's just being recirculated. That's what they do. They recirculate old stuff. She would know that before she sent it out and made herself look kind of foolish. But she does this over and over again. And we've seen this a lot. And if it's happening in that, in that arena, what's happening, what's happening within the church? What's happening within the Word of God? I appreciate. There have been several of you who've approached me and said, Bob, I'm not, I'm not really sure what you said there. Could you give us a little more, give me a little more clarification? Or I don't agree with what you said. As a pastor, I appreciate that. I need to be held accountable too. Right? As I told the group this morning, I'm just a guy who reads the Bible like you do. I have some tools that I refer to, but I'm no different. And it, it is helpful for me to have people who hold me accountable. But even more importantly... It tells me that you are in the Word of God. That's the best thing of all. That I know you're in the Word of God. So please don't ever, don't ever hesitate to come to me and say, Bob, you know what? I think you were off base. Do it respectfully. That'd be great. <laughs> but I got no problem with that. Absolutely. Because guess what? I might actually be... I'm going to try to say the word, wrong. (laughs) 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So please don't hesitate. I need the accountability and it encourages me to know that you're in the word of God. Does that make sense? And I think if more pastors had people like that in their churches, we wouldn't find ourselves in some of the predicaments we are in. That that makes sense. So this kind of is a partnership, isn't it? Does that mean we're always going to agree? We might have to agree to disagree on some things, right? Totally understand that. But please, don't ever, don't ever be afraid to come to me and say, Bob, I think you're an idiot, and I think you need to you know, check this out. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. So I'm glad you were here this morning. Absolutely was. And, and uh, so I hope this has been a blessing to you. I really do. Uh, I hope the Lord is working in your life, and, and however he may be doing so, I would just pray to you to respond to him accordingly. If you, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would love to introduce you to him. He loves you dearly. He died for you. I'd love to tell you about him. If you're looking for a church home, I would hope this would be a place you would feel like you could plant your feet, however the Lord leads you. Or if there's something else, something else on your heart, feel free to come and chat with me. I'm also here on Mondays, just as a reminder, so if you ever want to come see me on a Monday, you can do that as well. However the Lord leads you this morning, I would just pray you respond to him in obedience. Let me, uh, let me uh, close this. Uh, I'll pray for our offering, and then also I'll pray for our, our food. We have uh, plenty of food, I think. And so feel free to stay behind and, uh, and fellowship if you desire. So, Father, I thank, you for, uh, I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you sent your son Jesus to, to die on the cross for our sins. Thank you, Lord God, that you rose from the grave, that we might have life in you. Thank you, Father, for who you are. You're so good to us. Thank you, Father, for also giving us the ability to worship you in various forms, whether it be in, in, uh, in, in, in your word, uh, in song. Again, Father, I thank you for giving David to us this morning. Lord, I also uh, pray that uh, you would bless us as we continue our worship through giving. Father, I pray that you would just uh, use our gifts and our offerings and our tithes uh, for your, your purposes, uh, for your kingdom. Father, I pray that you bless the gift and the giver and that you give us as a church, Father, the wisdom uh, and the insight as to how to use your money, for it is your money. And Father, for our, our, our food, Lord, I pray that you bless, uh, bless the food, bless those who prepared it as well. And Lord, give us a, a rich time of fellowship. Thank you for the weather, Lord God. May you be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.